Hello, and welcome to Northeast Christian Church's online service. We are so excited to have you here with us. Be sure to subscribe to NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to our messages again, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the service. Amen. Amen. Yes, go Kim, somebody said. I agree. Well, good morning, everybody. I am channeling my inner Rick Warren from Saddleback Church today with this shirt. I hope you like it, because I do, and I don't care if you actually do. Uh, Before we kick into the sermon today, I had a couple of things I wanted to just kind of mention. The first of which is a lot of people are graduating around this time of year, and I'm very proud of our graduates. So if you happen to be graduating, yeah, give it up for them. So we, in, a, in a couple of weeks, we want to celebrate our graduates. So if you're graduating, please let me know. See me at the booth or just email us, office at lowlyg.org. We'd love to take a moment just to pray for you when that time comes. But there's two graduates in particular that I want to celebrate today. One is our very own Ben Ortiz. I got you a little book, Ben. Get, come on up here. Uh, ben just graduated with a bachelor's degree from UMass Amherst in architecture. Yeah. Ben, I've got you a book here, 100 in Ways to Be Less Stressed. You're going to need that with student loans, bro. I'm just kidding. Thank you. Love you, man. And then uh, Emily's, I don't know if Emily's in here. She was on doing worship. But uh, Emily Ortiz has uh, graduated from high school, and she's gotten a full ride at UMass Boston, and we're very proud of her. So Emily, come on up here. Very proud of you. Emily is part of the youth group. She's got a sharp mind and a compassionate heart, and I'm going to miss your presence in youth. And I know that there's a large percentage of people who abandon their faith when they go to school. And so I wanted to gift this to you. It's called Wisdom for Graduates, and it's about retaining your faith in a world where you kind of have to build your own scaffolding. So I, I believe that there's better things ahead that are behind for you, and we're proud of you. Congratulations. <laughs> very proud of all of our graduates, and we want to celebrate you too if you're graduating. I'm in grad school. Even if you're graduating with a master's, we need love too, okay? So let us know. All right. Uh, before I jump into the sermon, we, uh, we had a men's group meet this week. You can throw that picture up there if you'd like. Uh, just some men laughing here. Uh, that's the Adam meeting with uh, his radical mentoring group, and there's a few of these that happen. But you know what? As a man, it may be hard for you to jump into a group and share all your feelings with a bunch of total strangers. I don't know. Maybe you're not about that kind of deal. Um, But what I would say is, you know, it's important for men to connect. So we are having a Father's Day kind of potluck pig roast. It's a good time to uh, invite the important men in your life so that they can just have an opportunity to connect and eat food and just hear one another's stories. So please sign up to cook something for this pot roast. Adam and I are going to be preparing a bunch of pork shoulders. And I got to say, as a vegetarian, I'm sacrificing for you, okay? Because it's disgusting, but I'm doing it because most men like pork. So invite your, the important men in your life out and maybe even plug into a men's small group if you're a man. And you're like, I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to feel a little bit more connected. I want people to know my story and know my life. This is a good place to do that and just begin to build some connections. So you can talk to me about that if you'd like to, either after service or anytime during the week. Okay? 
Well, I'm honored to be able to share God's word with you today. I'm Pastor Dylan, for those of you who may not know me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're delighted if you're here for the first time, or maybe you're stepping into a church for the first time in a long time, and I want to say a special welcome to you. Either way, you are very welcome here. For the last couple of weeks, the pastors and elders have been having some important conversations about the pressing issues of our time. And in case you've been living under a rock like Patrick Starr from SpongeBob, you've probably noticed that the last couple of years have been pretty maddening. We live in a world that's full of venom and anger and contention. There's conflict over masks, policies, politics, bathrooms, children's curriculums, elections, genders, vaccinations, and wars, just to name a couple of them. And from the important to the trivial, it seems like every issue under the sun is a flashpoint for conflict in our day. And many of us jump at the opportunity to declare our allegiance through Instagram stories and TikTok videos and Facebook posts. We live in a contentious, vain, and angry age. And so as your pastors and elders, we feel the press of responsibility on us to help you navigate these muddy, murky waters in a godly way. How should you avoid, or I mean, how should you conduct yourself in this mess? And as we talked, we came up with the analogy of doves and vultures. And these are really just the words of Christ that we've applied to our time. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he says later in Matthew chapter 24, wherever there is a corpse, there the vultures will gather. Two birds with very different tunes. One symbolizes life, the other death. One is pure, one consumes what is decaying. Doves, by the way, are monogamous birds. I don't know if you knew that. They're committed to one another. They take care to one another. Vultures, on the other hand, are known for eating their fallen and wounded comrades. So how better to shape the conversation around contentious issues than with Jesus' own analogy? In your conduct, the question this morning is, are you a dove or are you a vulture? Over the next three months, we're going to be doing our best to, to find biblical conduct surrounding the debates on three major issues of our time. Number one, gender identity and sexuality. Number two, racial justice. And number three, abortion. And we'll be talking about one each month. We've been thinking about these topics for a while, and we wanted to make sure that when we speak, we speak with temperance, grace, love, and truth. And it's very difficult to do that around these things. So forgive us if we've been seemingly slow to speak directly to these issues in your opinion. It's not because we're scared or because we're avoiding conflict. It's because we believe that anything worth saying takes time to say. James, the brother of Jesus, puts it this way. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to anger, and slow to speak. Fools love to react. Wise people love to listen, pause, consider, and think. As the book of Proverbs says in two verses, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise person quietly holds back. And in Proverbs 18, chapter 1, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing their own opinion. And in this age that demands immediate speech, I hope we learn instead to pause, reflect, consider, instead of letting our emotions get the best of us. 
We need God's wisdom in order to do that. And so that's what we're going to ask for this morning, and that's how we're going to start this sermon in prayer. Would you join me? Father, we are incapable. You said that apart from you, we can do nothing. And you said to the one who lacks wisdom, just let them ask and you'll give it to them without rebuke. So that's what we ask for today, Lord. We ask number one for wisdom, that you would direct my lips, you would direct our hearts. I pray that in love, God, I pray your presence would be in this church and that you would help our hearts to turn toward one another instead of demonizing or characterizing one another. I pray that you would help us to love God because you said that that's how your church is going to be recognized. They will know us by our love. So I pray that your love would be on display today. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to approach the modern cultural issue of gender identity and sexuality from a biblical standpoint this morning in three steps. Number one, we're going to talk about setting the guidelines. Number two, we're going to talk about what the scripture says about it. And number three, we're going to talk about how to engage people who are a part of the LGBTQ community. So let's start by setting some guidelines. As we've been thinking about these issues, we've identified some biblical principles to help shape our conduct. And we've done this because good people disagree on these topics, and the worst of us comes out when we start viewing people as enemies instead of as people. And as a pastor, I am equally as concerned with your conduct as I am with your right belief and doctrine. Because if you believe all the right things, but you don't love people, the Bible calls you a noisy gong and a useless instrument in 1 Corinthians 13. In the book of Revelation, the church at Ephesus is rebuked by Jesus because they had all the right beliefs, but they did not love. I teach a class on theology to some people on Sunday mornings. And I pose the question to the students every week, what is the purpose of our theological study? And the answer is three. Ready? Spoiler alert. Number one, to change our minds. Number two, to change our actions. And number three, to change our hearts. And as Christians, we need all three of those. But number two and number three speak to what we're talking about today. How do you conduct yourself towards believers and non-believers as a Christian? What is appropriate conduct? So we've constructed some foundational principles for you. We're calling them principles for Christ-like conduct. And my hope is that they become a cultural manifesto for us as a local church body, a creed for how we agree to conduct ourselves, and a rule for how we choose to engage as Christians. I've printed them for you. We're going to read them together in just a moment. But I highly encourage you to read over these things and think about them this week, to go read those scriptures and meditate on them, because we've taken a lot of time to talk about this as pastors and elders, and there, is, there are many good things for you to meditate on and listen to there. So let's read them together. These are our principles for Christ-like conduct. Number one, speak in private. You can change the slide there, guys, to the next one. Number one, speak in private like you'll be heard in public. Number two, a Christian's conduct in conflict is governed by Scripture, not cultural norms. Number three, if life was always right or wrong, there would be no need for wisdom. Number four, our goal is to shape character as a church, not policy. 
We're looking to redeem people, not impose our will upon them. We're looking to inspire people, not control them. Number five, we want to give people invitations, not obstacles to come to Christ. Number six, speak in a way that can be heard and love in a way that would be listened to. Speak sensibly, respectfully, and gently to people with opposing views. Number seven, we change hearts before institutions. We would be remiss if we tried to enforce with institutions what the human heart does not choose. Number eight, we are not primarily called to political activism. Our primary mission is to make disciples. Number nine, you can respect everyone without agreeing with everything. I hope these begin to shape us. These principles are collectively the result of pastors and elders from very different backgrounds and opinions coming together, examining the Bible, and focusing on how it tells us to unite and conduct ourselves. And if one or more of these rubs you the wrong way, then maybe you've prioritized your political causes above the kingdom of God. The people who developed these principles vote differently look differently, are from different cultural and racial backgrounds, and are both male and female. We are a committed, moderate church. And if your faith fits seamlessly into one political structure or party, it is probably just a compromised version of Christianity instead of the true thing. And we've chosen to have these conversations now to set the guidelines of how we expect you to act as your leaders. As the rest of the country descends into backbiting and anger and outrage and hatred, I expect you to take the high road if you name the name of Christ and especially if you call this church home. If you mistreat others in this church for any politicized reason, you will hear from us. Sounds like we're the pastoral mob, doesn't it? <laughs> we're seeing our country divide more deeply over these flashpoint issues of gender identity, racial justice, and abortion, so we need to talk about them. But listen, we will always be approaching these issues from a different angle. Our question is always, how can we be God's holy people? It is not, how can we fix the whole world? Because guess what? I have bad news for you. God has promised that this world is going to get worse, not better. Social engineering will always fail and politicians will always underdeliver. Why? Because they are incapable of bringing lasting peace. But Jesus says, take heart. In this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. And he says in Luke 17, my kingdom is not of this world or else my servants would be fighting. And perhaps the reason you find yourself fighting more often than loving is because you've misidentified where God sets up his throne. It's not on the earth. It's not in Washington. It's not in Boston. It is in your heart, in the heart of your neighbor, and even in in the heart of your enemies. That is where God sets up his rule and reign. That's the foreground. Those are the guidelines that we've established for our church. And we pray that you would see the wisdom in them and endeavor to live by them. Next month is June. 
and we'll be entering what's called Pride Month by many, where large portions of our nation will celebrate the LGBTQ movement. And this is an issue that's close to home for me. I have people in my family who I love with my whole heart and I respect that, I, that have struggled in this area. And I pray that if they listen to this sermon, that they would not feel misunderstood or misrepresented, but I pray that they would hear love and truth in equal measure. I'm going to be talking about two things with our remaining time. Number one, what does the Bible say about same-sex relations and gender identity? And number two, how should we engage with those who are a part of the LGBTQ community? Guys, please stay on top of those slides. But before I do, I want to recommend two resources to you. I've read them both, and I highly recommend them. Uh, The first is a book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung? And this uh, has to do with the first question. What, what does the Bible really teach about it? If you wanted to know that, I highly recommend you pick up this book. It's very short. It's like 140 pages or something like that, okay? It's easily the most accessible read on the topic that I've ever read. It's very, very easy. The next book is probably the best book on the subject I've ever read, period, and it's called Born Again This Way by Rachel Gilson. She's a campus minister at Yale University, and she'll help you understand this struggle in a way that surpasses most other books. She identifies as someone with exclusive same-sex attraction, and she talks about her journey and how we can better engage with those struggling with this issue as Christians. And if you get nothing else out of today, I hope you would pick up that book. And if you don't like to read, that's okay. Buy it on audiobook. Listen to it during your commute. It is well worth your time and your effort because this issue is not going away. Okay? Let's begin with what the Bible says about same-sex relationships first and gender identity. We'll start with the New Testament and we'll end with the Old. Two verses in the New Testament speak very directly and strongly to this issue. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy will inherit the kingdom of God. And 1 Corinthians 1, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1.10 says that among lawbreakers are those who are sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. The Old Testament puts it most clearly in Leviticus 18.22. It says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, that is simply what the Scripture says on the matter. I'm not speaking to anything yet. I'm just saying this is plainly what the Scripture says. Romans chapter 1 clearly condemns both male and female same-sex relationships. Now, let me take some time and answer a few common objections to these verses so that you can understand where the arguments are being made in favor of it. Okay? Usually, the objections fall into one of two categories. They sound something like this. Number one, the Bible doesn't actually say that. That's number one. Number two, the Bible is a bigoted old book. Why should I listen to it anyway? Usually, every objection is one, one or, it's a variation of one or both of those things, okay? They'll say things like, the Bible didn't use the word homosexuality until modern English translations, or the Bible barely talks about it at all, or they weren't talking about two consenting adults in this, they were talking about child abuse instead. Those are the common objections. Okay, let me break them down for you. First, Paul the Apostle uses a compound Greek word that's found in Leviticus 18.22, and he changes it a little bit. 
Basically, he creates a new word to describe homosexual behavior. The word isn't used outside of the Bible, and critics argue he's talking about child abuse. But if you know any Greek at all, it literally translates as men who bed other men. The Greek word for child is tekton, and the Greek word for son is huios, and neither of these terms are used in any section of the Bible referring to this. In Leviticus 18, it does, it does forbid child abuse in a totally separate verse, not this one. Verse 22 is explicitly talking about same-sex relationships between two consenting adults. And up until the 1900s, this was translated as abusers of men, which we now call homosexual. And the reason for that, the reason we now translate it as that, is because early English translators did not use that word like we use it today. Words change based on context and meaning over time. Listen to the sentence. Ready? Here's an example. You can run fast, you can stop eating and do a fast, or you could trick me and pull over a fast one. Do you see how context completely changed the meaning of that word? Context is king. It changes a word's meaning. It's determined by context. And in this context, it means that God forbids sexual relations between two people of the same gender. Every translator of the last 2,000 years has agreed on that, except in recent years. And this is a classic example of what it means to read your culture into Scripture rather than trying to figure out what Scripture says on its own and letting it speak. The Bible is not unclear about this matter. It's just that we're unsure what to do with this knowledge. Many people would rather just have God on modern American terms that says, live and let live, que sera, sera, do whatever you would like. I don't care. Most people believe, want God to be like that. And it's easier for us to change the message than it is for us to deal with the implications of the message. And that is what scholars have been trying to do for the last 60 years. Now, I'm no scientist. I'm not here to tell you how people arrive at same-sex attraction, whether by birth or by experience, whether by nature or whether by nurture, or more likely a combination of both. I do not know. But what is clear is that the Bible puts a strong prohibition on same-sex relationships. Now, same-sex relationships are different than gender identity. Okay, one is an issue of sexual behavior. The other is an issue of what you build your whole personhood on. And I can say this. If you build your foundation on gender and sex, it will be an insufficient bedrock on which to build your life. It is not strong enough to carry an identity, a personhood, and in our world, we're trying to make it do something that it was never meant to do. I don't say that with hatred in my heart toward anybody struggling in this area. I don't say that lightly or to make light of your struggle. I'm simply making clear where the Bible stands on the issue because it would be dishonest of me or of anybody bearing the name pastor or scholar who attempts to make it say something else. I'm not saying you have to live by the Bible. I'm not saying that you have to listen to the Bible, but let's at least be honest about what it's really saying instead of adopting underhanded methods to try and change it. Now, all of that is objection number one. The Bible really doesn't say anything about this. It does. 
And anyone who tells you differently is simply ignorant when it comes to biblical language or they are being blatantly deceptive to try and make the Bible more palatable to our modern age. Okay. So now that we've got our heads around that, let's engage with our hearts a little bit. Okay. Hear what I am not saying. I'm not saying that the Bible says homosexuality is a uniquely sinful behavior. The Bible does not call people who identify as homosexual or part of the LGBT community, the Bible does not call them uniquely broken. Okay, they're undergoing a human experience just like any of the rest of us. I'm not saying that same-sex sin is any worse than any other litany of sins that the scriptures talk about. Gossip, slander, hatred, malice, angry outbursts, arrogance, or even heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. If you struggle in this area, hear me loud and clear, you are welcomed here. My objective is not to make you straight. It is to make you holy because that is what Christ calls all of us to. He calls us to repentance in different ways. But the reason we're talking about it here this morning in particular is because there seems to be a great deal of confusion even among modern Christians as to where God stands on the issue. God is not against you. He's for you. But he's calling you into repentance like he calls all of us into repentance to walk with him. But that's complicated further by this issue because many have made it part of who they are. They've made it part of their identity. If you struggle with this sin, however, you have the opportunity to pave the way for what repentance is supposed to look like for everybody, no matter what sin that they choose. All, all repentance requires part of the Christian to die, and you feel that sting perhaps more poignantly than others ever will. All of us are really doing what you have to do, and you see it so clearly. We must all lay down our lives in order to pick up the life of Christ. Repentance requires everything, and perhaps those of us who feel it to a lesser degree are less blessed. As Jesus says, those who are forgiven much love much, but those who are forgiven little love little. I can say that God will not let you down or disappoint you if you make that choice of repentance. I want you to know that if you're struggling with this, God is patient and compassionate, and he is your helper. I'm not saying that repentance means no more sin or no more struggle. It doesn't mean perfection. It means direction. I heard one of my psychology professors say it this way, most people come by their vices pretty innocently. We often don't choose what behaviors get a grip on us. Repentance teaches us, however, to identify ourselves by our relationship with God instead of by our sexuality. I believe that God defines who I am. I am Dylan. I'm God's son. I'm his servant. I'm his friend. In Matthew 20, 28, I'm actually called his brother. Those are what define me, not my sexuality. You see, faith and repentance, they, they don't mean complete certainty. They just mean enough certainty to trust that God is better than sex and yield to his way of doing things. 
God is not just trying to get you to stop being attracted to the same gender because there's no guarantee of that. The only guarantee we have is that God loves us and will never forsake us no matter what cross he asks us to bear, no matter what road we have to walk, no matter what life he gives to us, he will not forsake us or leave us no matter what our sin struggle is. My sin may be different than your sin. I think the majority of us have faced sexual sin in one way or another. I may not be able to fully identify with some of your journeys, but I can empathize and I can say that repentance is always worth it, even when it feels unbearable. Rachel Gilson, the same-sex attracted minister at Yale University, says it best. We are never promised relief from the dangerous desires we face, but we are promised the power to fight them victoriously. And that is true of every single person in this room, no matter what sins they battle. I don't know what desires of yours will leave, and I don't know what desires of, you, of yours will stay, but I do know that the sweetness of God's presence will always be worth it, no matter what sacrifice he asks you to make in life. And that's true of every single one of us. Doesn't matter what identity needs to be surrendered, whether it's sexual or otherwise, God is worth losing everything for. I have it tattooed on my arm to remind me the first sermon that I ever preached, Philippians 3, 8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I will lose everything and count it as gain, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but having a righteousness that is by faith in Christ. He is worth losing it all for. To so those of you who are struggling in this way, you have the opportunity to know Jesus more deeply in your sufferings and your loss and in your repentance than you ever do in your self-expression. He invites you to know him in a way he intends all of us to know him by the road of repentance. Rachel Gilson finishes her quote by saying this, same-sex attracted Christians have unique and powerful ministries. That is, we serve the church and the world through our example of obedience. How so? Because we witness powerfully to the beauty of Jesus over romance. Because we embody the necessity of relying on him alone to choose holiness. And because we prophetically call the church to honor God and their neighbor by neither adding to or taking from God's word on sexuality. And this leads me, naturally, to objection number two. What about those who say the Bible is bigoted and I want nothing to do with it? How dare you call me to obey a God I don't believe in? I want nothing to do with that. And that's part three of today. How do we engage with people who are a part of the LGBTQ community? I have to give credit for principle number nine on this sheet. I wish I could take credit for it, but... Uh, it is from Miss Magdalene Queche. I probably butchered your last name, Maggie. Um, but she came up with this, actually, as we talked to the youth on gender identity and sexuality issues last month. Uh, when we were speaking with them, she said this, and I think it's worth remembering. You can respect everyone without agreeing with everything. You can respect everyone without agreeing with everything. When it comes to those 
who are not following Jesus as their Lord. They've made it clear they don't want that. And when it comes to those who are not what the Bible would call a Christian, it is not our job to force them into our way of thinking or to impose our moral understanding upon them. That was the failure of Christians in the later Roman Empire, and that was the failure of Christians in the United States, especially from the 1980s onward, and their obsession with politics. We cared more about enshrining biblical truths and law than we did about writing them on the tablets of our own hearts, and we lost our bearing. It's time to reclaim our objective. As the church, we are primarily not called to political activism, but into making disciples. We are not called to shape institutions, but shape families and lives first. And we are not called to force Christian will on the world, but to love people to live holy lives, to bear fruit, and to show the world God's goodness like a city set on a hill. That is our calling as a church. But the question remains, how do we engage with this community? There's a professor of psychology at Regent University that has really helped me to frame my interactions with this community. His name is Dr. Mark Yarhouse. I encourage you to look him up, Dr. Mark Yarhouse. Uh, He's probably the leading Christian scholar on this issue right now. He says, we as Christians often view this people group through one of three lenses. The first is the integrity lens. This way of viewing people is very concerned with making sure that biblical rules are followed. And while this group of people is very concerned with the law of God, they often lose sight of the person. They're kind of like the Pharisee in in John chapter 8, who they all go to pick up a stone to stone the woman caught in adultery without reflecting on their own sin. They lose sight of the person who's right in front of them and the person who is within them while keeping the law of God right out front. That's a lens of integrity. Very concerned with biblical morality, very unconcerned with people. Okay, then he says the second lens is called diversity. This lens views LGBTQ practice as something worthy of celebration. They say that we ought to affirm and accept and support and embrace without question the whole movement. They want people with gender dysphoria to be embraced and experience belonging. And through this lens, the people might be crystal clear, but the concerns about what God says are completely jettisoned and are not in view whatsoever. And lastly, he talks about number three, a lens of disability. Mark Yarhouse says that this lens leads to the question, how should we respond to this condition while keeping in mind both the fall of man and the restoration of this person? This lens helps us see the law without losing sight of the person. This helps us recognize that people are hurting, and what heals hurting people is kindness, truth, compassion, and belonging, and those are hard things to hold together, but we must try if we actually care about these people. We must do our absolute best to be truthful and loving with them in every way. And that doesn't mean we accept their way of living or accept that that be imposed upon our children. But we can find ways to respect everyone without accepting everything. We can protect our children and shield them without demonizing people. Let me speak for one limited moment about the politicizing of this in our time. 
I hope that you will be discerning enough as Christians not to jump into partisan politics, but to remain committed to loving your enemies and teaching your children how to love their enemies as well, because that is much harder. I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but you can do this as parents because the scriptures say that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. So you don't need to be afraid of governments and and school systems. God is more powerful than any of them. And your children will be far more convinced by your love than they will by your outrage. Do your best to protect them. I'm not discouraging that. But don't let fear rob your graciousness toward non-believers, especially those who are struggling within the LGBTQ community. I understand that there's some non-age appropriate nonsense out there in school, and by all means, oppose that strongly. It's okay to speak up for what's in the best interest of your children. I encourage that. But let's not demonize image bearers of God in the process. They are people just like us. Sin has broken them just like it did to us before we encountered the loving kindness of Jesus. So let's put our best foot forward in love and respectfully oppose measures we disagree with rather than expressing hatred, anger, and outrage. As Paul the Apostle says, correct your opponents with gentleness. In 2 Timothy 2, that's where we got principle number six from, by the way, on your sheet. I'll invite the keyboard player back at this time. Mary Evelyn, you can come. I'm going to end with this story as she does come. And I debated whether to share it or not. It's kind of personal, but uh, I feel that it's to your benefit. I, uh, I have a very close family member who's transitioned to being a woman And I'll leave them unnamed for their privacy. This person has my utmost love and respect. This person has a new name, new pronouns, and it was very strange for me to adjust to all of that at first. And this may come as a shock to some of you, but I do my best to refer to them by their preferred name and pronouns. And I slip up sometimes. It's hard to know when somebody changes so drastically what to do. But I do that because I believe that my respect is owed to this person because they bear God's image, however broken it may be, because I know God's image is still being mended in me. They know I don't agree with their lifestyle, but I don't think I'm going to get anywhere with anyone by being intentionally disrespectful. And I know some of you have different convictions, and look, I respect that. I I am not up here as your pastor telling you what to do in this area. Looking through the lens of disability is going to be perceived differently to everybody. But I do it for this person because I love and respect them and want to maintain that relationship. If some stranger demanded that I call them whatever they wanted or else I'm a bigot, I'm sorry, I might have to draw the line there because as much as I respect you, I have to respect myself and respect God too. But in the context of this relationship, this is my choice. This is the choice I've made for my family member. And somebody once said to me, well, why would you choose to reinforce their delusion? And I think there's a lack of consistency in Christian conduct there. If someone committed adultery and remarried somebody else, you may not agree with that decision. I would go so far as to call that decision sinful. However, I wouldn't disrespectfully refuse to call their new spouse their wife if they happen to get married, even though I view that as an illegitimate marriage. Plain and simple, here's what I'm saying. 
You need wisdom for every situation and every person in your life because it's different. Because how you deal with each person in each scenario will change. But we must keep the people and God's law in our lens at all times because both lead to healing, not one or the other. How this plays out from situation to situation change. There is no clear roadmap on how to do this with each and every person and every scenario, no matter what. And when people view our faith as bigoted and hateful or repressive to them, maybe the best sermon we can preach is by how we live our life. Instead of holding picket signs and blowing up social media and signaling how righteous and correct we are to the rest of the world, we can open our homes and our hearts to people who have been mastered by sin the same way that we were. Because I find that people are much more open to your advice and correction if they know you have their best interests at heart and you only want what's best for them. And that only happens with love, time, and investment. So let's stop foisting our beliefs on people without any context of relationship because Jesus didn't even do that. He first came, he forgave us, he enters into a covenant with us, and then he begins to help us with our behavior, not the other way around. So how should we treat people in this community? With love and respect, viewing them with a lens that helps us not just see the truth, but see the person I'll close with this verse from the Apostle Peter. It's from 1 Peter 2. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter is instructing the church not just to honor everyone, which, by the way, means the very promiscuous Greek and Roman culture of his time, but to honor the emperor. And at this time, it was Emperor Nero who is famous for killing Christians and being their enemy. And if Peter expects us to honor a man like that, then we can honor and respect our perceived enemies in this age. This is my call to repentance for all of us. And you can stand. The same way that they have repenting to do, so do we to repent of using power to try and accomplish godly ends, to, to repent for relying on the government to do what only the Holy Spirit to, can do, and to repent for fighting our enemies instead of loving them. This week, give your repentance feet. There is no altar call. I'm going to pray in a moment for us Christians, and my charge for us is simple. Go love them. Invite them to coffee. Ask about their lives. Show them that somebody in this world cares for them and isn't trying to use them as a political talking point. Empathize with them because Romans 2.4 says, it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. Show them that their sexual brokenness doesn't disqualify them from a relationship with Jesus the same way yours has not. And every time you feel tempted to post an outrage, I encourage you to reach out to that person instead and say, I love you and I'm praying for you. And pray for your enemies. And we'll see that God is able to do far more by his spirit than he will through our political activity. And for those of you who are struggling in this way, believers and non-believers, because it's in everybody. 
I want you to know that I recognize that no one gets to where they are by trying to do evil. We're all trying to make sense of our lives and most people come by their behavior pretty innocently. All of us have a road to repentance to walk on. And I invite you to begin yours with this promise. God loves you and will not forsake you. This leadership and your Father in heaven will not stop walking with you if you stumble and fall. You are known, loved, and invited into a new identity in Christ. As he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Listen, I don't know which of your desires are going to stay, and I don't know which of your desires are going to go when you begin walking this road with Jesus. Sometimes God leaves thorns in our flesh, as the scriptures say, but I can promise this. If you follow Jesus, if you keep walking after him, you will find a life that is more satisfying, more tailored to who you truly are, more representative of the person that is inside of you, and more fulfilling to your soul than you will if you base it on gender and sexuality alone. And this goes for all of us. I don't care what your sin of choice is. If you walk with Jesus, you will find a new identity that enlivens your soul more than if you clung to your sins. You see, that's the lens that I view you and God views you through. He sees your potential, not just your current reality. And he sees that there is a new creation, a kernel inside of you that is waiting to blossom if you'll water it. And so that's what I'm going to pray for us this morning. Father, this week, I pray that every person in the sound of my voice would walk a little closer with you in repentance and would be humbled to see the sins of people around them not as offensive, but I pray that they would look at sins with pity the same way that you looked at us you had mercy on us. You sent your son to save us. You didn't say, you've made your bed, sleep in it. You said, here I am, rise up and walk. Lord, I pray that you would give feet to people once again. I pray that your spirit would cause them to revive once again. And I pray that you would do in our hearts and minds what we can't on our own, God. I pray that you would shape a new creation, a new identity, one that is freed and liberated from sin, maybe not the desires for it, but at least the presence of it, and that you would help us to walk on this road with your son Jesus and you would make us new in Jesus name we pray amen and amen, amen. we care about you as your pastors we want you to know that we talk about these things because we want to help you conduct yourselves in the right way and orient your heart towards God to serve him in every situation. We love you, God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you again for being with us today. To listen to all of our messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify, and go to lowellag.org or ne-cc.org to keep up with all of our news, updates, and events. Thank you, and God bless.